All right, y'all, welcome to the Scott Horton Show. I'm the director of the Libertarian Institute, editorial director of Antiwar.com, author of the book Fool's Errand, Time to End the War in Afghanistan, and the brand new Enough Already, Time to End the War on Terrorism. And I've recorded more than 5,500 interviews since 2003, almost all on foreign policy and all available for you at scotthorton.org. You can sign up for the podcast feed there. And the full interview archive is also available at youtube.com slash Scott Horton Show. Hey guys, on the line, I've got junior editor at, uh, no, junior fellow Jim Bovard, uh, one of the greatest libertarians ever and the writer of most of the books that have ever been published in American history, which you can all find under his file at amazon.com including Lost Rights and the Bush Betrayal and Freedom in Chains and Attention Deficit Democracy. Ah, I love that book. And, of course, uh, Public Policy Hooligan. That's a book he wrote about himself. It's really good. And, man, you guys are going to love this article that he's got at the Libertarian Institute. 30th anniversary of the FBI's biggest bomb. And I know you guys are saying, no... Because the FBI didn't bomb the Branch Davidians until April the 19th. So, no, 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 it's not about that. It's about the World Trade Center bombing of 1993. Welcome back to the show, Jim. How are you doing? Hey, Scott. Thanks for your kind words. It's always uh, uh, happy to show up as a junior fellow. Hell yeah. Well, I'm so happy. I'm waiting, to get, I'm, I'm waiting to get a special T-shirt for that. But, you know. Um, oh, we should do that. Hope lives eternal. No, I'm I'm joking. I don't need a T-shirt. I've got too many T-shirts from bluegrass concerts. <laughs> That's funny. You know what? I'm taking a note right now. We're going to get it done. <laughs> fact, uh, I'm going to get uh, Top Lobster to do it, so it's going to be really dope. We'll make hey, sure you have your uh, choo-choo train hat. Uh, hey, Scott, first yeah. you've got to finish your book. First you've got to finish the book. That's going to be a little while. Yeah, I outsource the art, man. Um, listen... This article is so good and important, and I already know everything about this, but I learned all kinds of things about it from you in this piece. And it's such an important story, and it's one of the things that made me such a political radical at the time. In fact, I'll tell you a story. I just thought of it. Here I am, driving to junior college one day. I'm going to say it was 1997, and I'm on I-35 listening to Rush Limbaugh. And the caller says, hey, Rush, you know, you got to read the New York Times from October 28th, 1993, because in there, it's all about how the FBI could have stopped the World Trade Center bombing, but they didn't. And then he's gone and Rush starts talking about football or some other thing. Gone. <laughs> you know, like, but Snurdly didn't get on the button in time to save us from the entire thing. But... I'm good at names and dates and stuff. And I was actually on my way to a place with a gigantic library with the New York Times on microfiche. Like at the time, I was on my way there. So that's what I did. I went straight to the library and I looked up October 28th, 1993, New York Times. And there's all kinds of stuff in there. There's an obituary for Gottlieb, the MK Ultra scientist. And what was the other thing? I can't remember. But what there is, is there's Ralph Blumenthal. And Ralph Blumenthal is explaining how there's tapes of an FBI informant in conversation with his FBI handlers and them admitting to him that, yeah, we could have stopped the first World Trade Center bombing. Now, I have another story, as long as I'm wasting time talking stories. 
One time I had a guy in my cab, and I was saying, come on, the FBI, they'll never stop a terrorist attack. They like terrorist attacks. That's their job, man, you know, making money and getting promotions and having problems and whatever I was telling him. And he was saying, you're a crazy kid. You don't know what you're talking about. And I said, well, really? It's the October 28th, 1993, New York Times. You can look it up. It's by Ralph Blumenthal. And he goes, Ralph Blumenthal? Well, I know Ralph Blumenthal. He's a friend of mine. You're telling me he wrote that? And I said, that's right, buddy. Read it and weep, pal. And he said, all right, well, I'll look into it. So anyway, those are my stories that I happen to remember and feel like saying to you right now. Um, but this is, you know, a big part of what me made me such a political radical in the 1990s was how can they get away with this stuff? They get away with covering up that a bombing that could have toppled one tower into the other. They get away with murdering all those Branch Davidians. They get away with, did you see the groundbreaking story today in CNN, Jim, about Terry Yakey, the Oklahoma City police officer, hero from the scene of the bombing, who was clearly murdered, probably by the FBI, because he was on to what they had done there. And CNN had that? CNN has that today, man. You got to read it. Stop. I am shocked. Yeah. So listen, this is what made me who I am is this stuff before the terror wars even broke out was, you know, along with, you know, covering up the Gulf War illness and some other things. But but World Trade Center, Waco and Oklahoma bombing. And I know that Oklahoma is supposed to sound like more conspiracy cooties ish or something, but that's just not true. Like we we know what happened there. And and anyway, it's a different story than we're going to talk about today. But um this is huge, and yeah, it's 30 years ago, but that's just a blink of an eye to a lot of us anyway. 1993 was a good year for me. So um, please take us through every bit of this. I did talk for the first 10 minutes of this interview, but you're going to talk for the rest of it. I want to know all of what you talk about here, because this is just incredible, your research and the way you put it together and the way you developed the story beyond what I ever understood about it. Well, it's a fascinating story to me. It's something that I came across, um, I, it had not showed up on my radar in 93 because I was uh, basically, you know, chasing rabbits to finish up lost rights at that point. But when I was writing uh, Terrorism and Tyranny in 2002 and 2003, I, uh, I came across this and it was a, a, you know, a shining example of how the feds had just completely failed to have any kind of competent anti-terrorism efforts. So this is a case that started in uh, November 1990. Rabbi Meyer Kahane was assassinated in New York at a New York hotel. He was he had uh, he's he started the Jewish Defense League, uh, and he was advocating banishing all Arabs from Israel and the occupied territories. Uh, his political party was banned from the Israeli. Uh, Parliament for inciting racism and endangering the peace, but he had a lot of supporters here in the U.S., New York perhaps especially. So he was shot by a 36-year-old Egyptian immigrant who was part of an anti-Israel group there in the New York area. The uh, police searched the uh, shooter's residence. They carried off 47 boxes of documents, maps, diagrams, stuff like that, including the World Trade Center. Well, it turned out that no one in the New York FBI office could read Arabic, so those documents, a roadmap to the 1993 bombing of the World Trade Center, were left in storage for a couple years. And it turned out that the, that the New York police did not want to delve deeper in this. They want a nice, simple case, okay, slam dunk, all so on and so forth. It, it so the uh, the trial for this guy, the guy that killed Kahani, was marked by rioting outside. There was clashes between 
uh, his supporters, the um, Muslim supporters, uh, nasty business. And what the FBI did was place an, an informant, uh, Emed Salem, a former Egyptian military officer in the midst of the Muslim protesters. Mm-hmm. And um, he was able to wheedle his way in close to the blind sheik, uh, Sheikh Abdul Rahman, who was a leader as far as the, the resistance in that area. And um, uh, um, flash forward to mid-1992, um, the FBI informant warns them that the Muslims were planning to carry off a catastrophic bombing in the New York area. His supervisors thought he was lying and canceled his $500 a week informant pay. You know, six, eight months later, the uh, massive bomb explodes in the uh, uh, underneath the World Trade Center, killed six people, injured a thousand, half a billion dollars in damage. If, if that van had been parked a few feet further or closer to a pillar, the entire tower might have collapsed at the World Trade Center, killing thousands of people. Now, it's it's funny how the news news covered this once it happened. The, the FBI got lots of praise because they were able to break the case because one of the plotters went to the Ryder rental truck place where he'd run the van and demanded a $400 refund on his deposit. You know, this is a really bad move if you're a terrorist plotter. You know, <laughs> you'd never go back and ask for your refund or your deposit. But he did, and the F- the uh, uh, Time magazine said the FBI looks supremely capable in speedily rounding up the suspects from the bombing. What they didn't tell us um, until it didn't come out until later in 1993 mm-hmm. was that the uh, this guy, Salem, had been inside. He had warned the FBI that the uh, Muslim group was planning to do a bombing. But the and uh, Salem in his uh, taped phone calls to the FBI because he didn't trust him. I mean, it's, uh, a lot of people have that trouble. Uh, but he was saying that the FBI had supervised the building of the bomb. Uh, it was supervised uh, by your confidential informant. What a wonderful, great case it would be. So, and he was, you know, in the phone calls, he was anguishing. He said, everything was all set up. And Salem, uh, this guy offered to substitute uh, a fake powder for the bomb explosive such that uh, no one would get hurt. FBI said no. So um, thanks to that, the, um, you know, the uh, bomb went off. And the, uh, that headline, that, that uh, New York Times piece, which you mentioned, it was a headline that stuck in my head. Tapes depict proposal to thwart bomb use in Trade Center blast. Yep, that's it. And, 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 and it's like, um, so how did this vanish in the memory hole? How did the FBI ever get its, uh, get its reputation back? And it's even worse than that because Newsday the following day had a story about there was a second FBI informant in the same group. And he had, uh, he was, uh, he, had, he had infiltrated the Jersey city mosque. And um, I didn't know that was, if I had yes. ever known that I had forgotten that, but I don't think I ever knew that. Yeah, uh, that was something which I had forgotten until I was going back over my notes from Terrorism and Tyranny in 2002. Mm. The, um, so, the, so the informant, uh, uh, that informant uh, had met with FBI officials for an entire day and to talk about providing the suspects with a counterfeit dynamite. But the FBI was worried about an entrapment charge, so, so they pulled the informant uh, off the assignment the next day, according to Newsday. I would guess there is a hell of a lot more to that specific, mm-hmm. but uh, 
you know, um, it's uh, here again, it's just amazing how much of this vanished into the memory hole. Now, some folks say, well, this, you know, the, uh, the informants weren't trustworthy. Well, the FBI Justice Department paid uh, Imad Salem a million dollars for his testimony in 1995 to convict the other Muslim plotters. So, but it, it's just, it's fascinating to me to see how the, uh, this is something which completely foreshadowed the FBI failures on the 9-11 attacks because there was a line that Louis Free, FBI director, said in 1997, he was uh, you know, pushing Congress for a bigger budget. He promised he would double the shoe leather for counterterrorism. You know, but walking is no substitute for thinking. And these FBI agents uh, didn't know how to use computers or had old computers that could not be used for email or searching the web. Yeah. There was a, a, there was an ethos that real men don't type. And so that's yeah, and they don't go the down reason. to the local college and ask somebody to help them with some Arabic translations either. Yes. That's and like so, women's work or something. Is that it? I don't know. But I, uh, there was there was a. Uh, there is a macho element to uh, some of the FBI agents that has not been uh, helpful to their understanding what they're investigating. Um, but you had the same thing after the uh, 9-11 attacks. You had the Bush administration working to sweep a lot of the FBI failures under the rug. Uh, but, you know, this is an agency that did not learn from the first World Trade Center bombing. And it seemed like what it learned from 9-11 was it had to launch all these entrapment schemes all over the place at the same time that they've uh, rounded up lots of, you know, hapless nitwits. Mostly they've also failed to stop a number of other violent terrorist attacks. So folks wonder why I'm cynical. Yeah, seriously. Well, you know, I really don't like Peter Lance and I can't bring him up without mentioning that, but his book is really good. A thousand years for revenge. And he basically tells the story as you were saying there that they didn't, do a thorough job investigating the murder of this crazy right-wing rabbi. And therefore, they didn't really have, you know, they didn't do as good of a job as they could have in infiltrating this ring. But even then, the degree to which they had infiltrated it, they, well, I know this story. I think this is, a bit of this is in the Times piece, too, is that the way they portrayed anyway was that these street-level agents, Nancy Floyd and John Antisev, that they essentially were trying to work with this informant. And at least the way they, in their scenario here, it was their supervisor, Carson Dunbar, who essentially just had no interest in this. He was too busy, you know, prosecuting John Gotti or some other thing and just didn't care and didn't wasn't interested. And uh, I think besides taking the $500 or refusing to pay him the six that he was asking for, whatever it was, try to insist that Salam wear a wire while he sleeps on the floor of the mosque with these other guys. And he's like, well, yeah, come on, man, I'm not wearing a wire, you know? And then anyway, they just didn't want to hear it. But, you know, it occurred to me while you're uh, talking there that I have some of this audio. It's just uh, about 50 seconds worth. If you want to listen to it, Jim, let's see. What go it for it. Everything was, Submitted with a receipt. Yeah, and now it's questionable. It's not questionable. It's like a, a little out of ordinary. Okay, you know. All right. I don't think it was. If that's what you think, guys, fine. But I don't think that because we was start already building the bomb, which is went off in the World Trade Center. It was built by uh, 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 supervising uh, supervision from the bureau. 
and the GA, and we was all informed about it, and we know that the bombs start to be built. By who? By your confidential informant. What a wonderful, great case. Well. And then he put his head in the sand and said, oh, no, 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 that's not true. He is son of a bitch. Okay. Well. It's built with a different way in another place, and that's it. So there you go. So he's the informant. That is great. His that him, is great. Yeah, yeah, so he's the informant he's talking about. And he says, oh, but then you pulled me off, and it was built somewhere else by someone else. And he, there he's talking about Ramsey Youssef, and who built a real bomb and killed six people. And as you say in the book, and this has been, you know, engineers talked about this. People can find this easily, where it's just widely understood that if they had just parked the truck over there instead of over here, taken out the retaining wall instead of the pillar that they chose to take out, or even just a different pillar— whatever it was, that that could have tipped one tower over into the other, broken from the yep. bottom, and tipped them over. And in at, what was it, 4 o'clock in the afternoon or something? So I now think Bill it was Clinton, earlier, but I'm not sure. Okay. Yeah, you may be right. You may be right. Um, late, I'm not late, married late. to the time there. Sorry. But it was, it was not like first thing in the morning before anybody got there, and it was not no, after no. hours when most people had gone home. It was like during the workday for sure. Yep. And so here, Bill Clinton's the president. He's been president for a month and a week, right? He's brand new. And then two days later, the ATF raids the Branch Davidians and the FBI takes over all that. So now, on one hand, we got mullet-headed dudes with Trans Ams in Texas. And on the other hand, we have all these weird Muslim guys from overseas with weird names and a weird language that we don't understand and you could just see how the interest was so divided away from this story, which could have, should have been the biggest story in the whole world. Because, I mean, just think of it, like if he hadn't had the Davidian thing happen at all, and people had had a minute to say, well, wait a minute, they really could have knocked one tower over into the other. Let's just use our imagination and think how bad this could have been. And what's really going on here? And why do we have Egyptian Islamic Jihad living in Brooklyn, blowing up our skyscrapers? <laughs> and why did these guys used to work for the CIA in Afghanistan? And what is the damn deal? And how do they get into the country? And we know that, too, that the CIA intervened with the State Department to let them in and with the INS to let them in. Yeah, well, it's just one damn mystery after another. I'll tell you, man, it's... um. It, yeah, there's an alternative history of the 90s there without Waco where things are different, you know, and maybe much worse. I don't know. Or maybe people would have got it through their head right then that like, man, we really should stop bombing Iraq from bases in Saudi, which is what Ramsey Youssef said was part of his motive, that in Palestine. That's yeah, what Al-Qaeda well, said, it, you know, all decade long. Yeah, it, it's interesting. Uh, you know, this uh, this World Trade Center in Waco were 93 Lost Rights, uh, my book came out in 94, and so many people said, yeah, you know, you're just so damn cynical. It, you know, it's got some good stuff, but you're just too cynical. So I'm thinking, that, like, yeah, yeah, well, you know, how'd your faith in government work out? I know, it's crazy. I mean, I was joking on Twitter the other day about, I don't know why I'm going to quote myself, I'll just tell the joke to you now. But how could the FBI have done any of this other stuff when we all know that they were abolished back after Waco because that's uh -huh. how it works in America, right? They kill all these people, 25 kids. I thought it was 17. It was 25 kids and two pregnant women. This massacre, the biggest thing since the first wounded knee. 
Well, it was the, um, you know, it's not easy to prevent child abuse. Yeah, no, you got to go the hard way, apparently, according to the federal police, Jim. Um, so anyway, but, uh, yeah. Now, hang on, because there was more in here that I learned that I wanted to dig into with you here. Uh, Louis Free, yeah, I don't like him. Um, well, I guess, you know, part of the story was how the kind of same group of people just continued to do the same thing. And the FBI, instead of ever rounding them up or working with the CIA to round these guys up or certainly cease their occupation of Saudi Arabia and motivating their attacks against us in the first place or anything like that, um, they just kind of, I mean, in fact, as I'm documenting in my new book, Bill Clinton backed the jihadis in Bosnia, Kosovo, and Chechnya. And so this yep. whole time, like, they're looking at these guys like, eh, they're kind of dangerous. I mean, they did almost topple one tower into the other that one time. But on the other hand, we can use them to kill Serbs. And did you know, Jim, oh. I didn't I didn't know this. That I knew that Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, Ramzi Youssef's uncle, had fought in Bosnia on Bill Clinton's side. And that that was where he earned his stripes. That's in Fool's Aaron. But I see, I never read the 9-11 Commission report because as Ron Paul would have said, I don't want to be confused by their propaganda. You know, I'll just read yep. private sector journalists. But I didn't realize that it was in there. Somebody, I, I finally saw a footnote somewhere that two of the hijackers, the, the San Diego cell that famously uh -huh. were in the country for a year and a half that the CIA followed to LAX and and yep. for whatever reason, the FBI never rolled up that whole time. Uh, or Yeah, anyway, that whole thing. Those two guys, um, I would say their names wrong, Hazmi and Midhar, or is it Hazmi? Hamzi, Hazmi, they fought in Bosnia too. That was how, how they earned their stripes as legit Al-Qaeda terrorists to join the crew to hit the Pentagon. Wow. Yeah. I didn't know that. Give me just a minute here. At the Libertarian Institute, we publish books. Real good ones. So far, we've got Will Griggs' No Quarter, Sheldon Richmond's Coming to Palestine, and What Social Animals Owe to Each Other, and four of mine, Fool's Aaron, Enough Already, the great Ron Paul, and my brand new one, Hotter Than the Sun, Time to Abolish Nuclear Weapons. And I'm happy to announce that we've just published our managing editor Keith Knight's first one, The Voluntarist Handbook, an excellent collection of essays by the world's greatest libertarian thinkers and writers, including me. Check them all out at libertarianinstitute.org books. And for a limited time, signed copies of Enough Already and Hotter Than the Sun are available at scotthorton.org books. Hey guys, I had some wasps in my house, so I shot them to death with my trusty Bug Assault 3.0 model with the improved salt reservoir and bar safety. I don't have a deal with them, but the show does earn a kickback every time you get a Bug Assault or anything else you buy from Amazon.com by way of the link in the right-hand margin on the front page at scotthorton.org, so keep that in mind. And don't worry about the mess, your wife will clean it up. So you can see why there's all these. Uh, and, you know, Colleen Rowley, Jim, who famously um, she was the lawyer for the FBI office in Minneapolis. And uh -huh. it's not exactly right to say her team, but the team she was on, what they were doing was they had busted this guy, Musawi, who wanted to learn how to fly a jumbo jet but not how to take off or land it. And they were totally, as you know, I think one of the employees from the place, um, 
had mentioned this, and then they had mentioned this in their cables to headquarters. That we think this guy might want to try to crash into the World Trade Center or something like that. That was their yeah. speculation. And um, she believes, and there's an article that she wrote for Consortium News about this, and I try to flesh this out as good as I can in the new book, too, that part of the reason that the um, FBI supervisors would not let Minneapolis go to the FISA court to get a FISA warrant, as you know, on a much lower threshold than probable cause, just a reasonable yep. belief that this guy is an agent of a foreign power or a foreign terrorist yep. group, yep. right? Um, the only reason that they had on that was that French intelligence confirmed that he and his brother were recruiters for the jihad in Chechnya for Al-Khattab. But we like Al-Khattab and we like what those guys are doing in Chechnya. And so oh, that really? doesn't count, even though wow. this guy Katab is, you know, bin Laden's twin brother in in essence, right? Uh, and and direct associate of bin Laden's. And so they said essentially this guy, yeah, he's he, he might be a bin Ladenite terrorist, but to us he's a moderate rebel because of he's fighting against the Russians and we hate them more, right? Just like we hate the Alawites more in Syria or we hate the Houthis more in Yemen this kind of thinking. And so that wow. was why Minneapolis couldn't get their warrant for Musawi's computer, which as is proven documented, if they'd open his computer as they eventually did on September 11th, after it was too late, they could have traced this guy directly to the main cell in Hollywood, Florida with yep. uh, Mohammed Atta and his buddies. And they could have stopped September 11th right there. Then it was yep. covering for the Jihad in Chechnya. I'm just ranting all over your interview, but isn't that great story, man? You know, the, the yeah. shit they get away with. It's just, it, it is mind-blowing. I understand it sounds like crazy stuff, but it's just how crazy the world is. That's all. Yeah, there, there's some great stuff Colleen Rally's done, and I certainly appreciate her candor and her courage mm -hmm. uh, talking uh, an inside view from the FBI. So, yeah. And, you know, I think I interviewed her about that subject, and I bet that's in those notes. I know I wrote about this in the book, but now I'm thinking i got to follow that up. I bit off way too much, more than I can chew with this book, Jim. It was supposed to be how America started the war in Ukraine, but now it's really everything America did unfairly, basically, kicking the Russians while they're down over the last 30 years and how it led to this. And so it's long. So it does have sections on Bosnia, Kosovo, and Chechnya, and Kyrgyzstan, and every damn thing. So I guess we'll see if people want to bite off the whole thing and chew it with me by the time I'm done. Well, it, it sounds like it's going to be a great book, and I just hope you don't run out of Dr. Pepper. <laughs> yeah, well, no, they're still cranking that stuff out around here for the money, you know. Supply yeah, I was, in, I, was, I, was flying, I was flying to Dallas once about a decade ago, and there were these two middle-aged women, and, you know, they, you know, they were just chatting pretty loud, and, you know, there was, and there's, there's one that turns the other and says, I can't wait to get to Dallas to have a DP. That's and so I was funny. thinking, wow, well, she, you know, I didn't think she was that wild, but oh, uh, Jim. Wrong. oh, that's bad. You're a terrible <laughs> man. Hey, I, I didn't know DP <laughs> was an abbreviation for Dr. Pepper. I just figured, you know, hell, let's see, you know, that's because you're from one of them Northeastern New England Yankee states up there. Right? Hey, 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 I was born in Iowa. Okay. I'm Midwestern. All right. It's a flag of convenience. All right. Yeah, well. That might as well be New England to me, man. Oh, listen to this shit. Listen to this shit. Okay, you're the, uh, no, I, I can't say that on the interview, so I'll shut up. Hey, I'm a Texan is the end of that sentence. 
Well, mm-hmm. yes, indeed. All right, shut up. I'm going to interview you about your other article now. This is really good stuff, too. How the Fed spends $74 million a year to try to censor Americans. How do they do that, Jim? Uh, the, uh, glo- the state, well, there's a lot of different programs they use to censor, a lot of different um, grantees, but the, uh, this is uh, the State Department branch that has uh, gotten revved up here in the last few years and is now uh, you know, shoveling out money to a bunch of uh, secret private contractors who are going around trying to uh, throttle people on Twitter and elsewhere. Uh, so it's, a, uh, it's an unsavory business. This is part of the uh, Global Engagement Center of the State Department, created by Obama in 2016. And it's basically gone wild in recent years, doing a lot of, uh, you know, with these long, uh, sending uh, Twitter, for instance, a list of a quarter million Twitter users, Twitter million accounts, which the State Department wanted to see canceled. And the reason was that the uh, these were people, some of them were talking about how the COVID pandemic was actually a lab leak and not uh, something that came from some wet uh, market in uh, China. So, so, I mean, it was obviously necessary to shut them down. Yeah, <laughs> uh, it's just amazing that, you know, just like with any of these things, you know, Taibbi had that piece yesterday. I mean, it's a great Twitter thread. I don't know if he gets into it too much in the Twitter thread, but in his article on Substack, he talks about how this really all started as sort of a panic of counter-recruitment against ISIS, and which, of course, didn't work at all because people were joining ISIS for reasons that didn't include misinformation had fooled them. <laughs> you know, that all that was stupid. But, and then, but, of course, ISIS was just... You know, Al-Qaeda in Iraq was dead until Obama and America's allies backed the Al-Qaeda forces in Syria for three and a half years until it blew up into, you know, ISIS broke off from Al-Qaeda and created their Islamic State in Syria. And then a year later in Iraq and all this. And then all that was just trying to make up for Iraq War II. Uh, You know, and all this is just consequences that we got to live with. You are um, a Russian bot, Jim, and we're going to throttle your presence down because you retweeted a thing based on authority granted to try to prevent a terrorist in Iraq from recruiting a young kid in the suburbs of, you know, somewhere in Iowa 10 years ago. Well, yeah, I mean, the, the, uh, the standards, this is a government agency whose motto is close enough for government work. <laughs> and so it just has these massive lists, thousands and thousands of people, including many Americans, who who they want to silence, but they've got no reason for it. For instance, the um, according to the uh, this State Department branch, uh, if if someone supports the French yellow vest protests that were anti-lockdown, then you're Russian aligned. And it's like I supported that protest. It's about the best thing the French have done since the Battle of Waterloo. Uh, so, but, uh, that would make me Russian aligned, but there's a lot of other stuff I've written that would probably get me qualified for that already. So, yeah, seriously. Well, I know, and it's, uh, something worth bragging about as you do in your books, you've been condemned by all these government agencies for all your great work against them that actually hit the mark when you published it too, not just as good stuff, but. It's stuff that they had to respond to by ruthlessly denouncing you and your lies. So that is definitely something to be proud of. And I would not doubt Thanks. whatsoever if they had like preemptively put you on the 
Russian list or whatever it is. This guy Bovar, don't let him get retweeted. No, I don't know. I retweet you, but. Well, thanks very much. I appreciate that. Yeah, the, uh, the Washington Times did a story last summer about how the Justice Department had pressured USA Today to stop publishing me. So, you know, I'm sure there's been a lot of other stuff that happened That's behind right. those doors. You know, I forgot about that because of all the holes in my head. Tell that story again. Yeah, so I was writing. Uh, I've, you know, I've been I've been writing for USA Today for decades, actually, but uh, started doing a lot more for them around 2014, 2015. I was I was having fun smacking around Eric Holder, the Attorney General at that point, and so the uh, his press chief sends these emails to uh, my editors at USA Today, basically pressuring them to stop publishing me, um, which they did not do at that time, which was good. But it was this. It was interesting. It was. It took me. It was difficult to co- get copies of these emails. Let's just put it like that. Hmm. Were you working for Indian intelligence at the time? That's what it says here. Uh, Indian intelligence. Um, no, I was. I was just throwing rocks at the government. It's uh, cheaper than therapy. <laughs> um. All right, man. Well, you know, I wonder whether. All this stuff that's been revealed by Matt Taibbi about all the influence on Twitter. And of course, you know, we can only imagine, but we must be right that they're doing the exact same thing at all these other major, you know, Silicon Valley institutions and all that. But this is I think Facebook is worse, but yeah, go ahead. I mean, yeah, it must be. But Google, too. I mean, Google, yeah, Google doesn't even work anymore. You know, it's so, yeah. and and it must be the politics of it that does it. But, I, you know, I just do nothing but research things all damn day. And I'm telling you, the thing used to be great in terms of finding what it is that you're looking for. And it's just, ah. and and it's clear that the algorithm has been shifted. And I blame the FBI, but uh, all this is unconstitutional, right? This is just blatant. Like, if it ever came to somebody has the right standing to sue them all and some kind of a thing... And back against the wall, the Supreme Court, if they're going to live up to their oath at all, they would have to say that the First Amendment forbids all of this. You can't do this, government, right? Well, it's it, it's interesting. You had the FBI, you had um, Christopher Ray, FBI chief, saying and telling that was it Brett Baer a few nights ago saying we don't we we don't do censoring. We're you know we aren't truth police. We're in a ministry of truth, but. If you look at the time sequence, you had President Biden in July 2021 came out and accused Facebook and other social media companies of murdering people by uh, by just, uh, by um, um, by letting stuff go on there that was critical of the vac- uh, the COVID vaccines. Mm-hmm. The the, uh, the the president came out and said Facebook and others are killing people. So you, you've got a presidential accusation of murder that's followed up by hints by top officials. Well, we could do some regulatory action here, maybe some antitrust action. And then the FBI shows up and says, hey, we'd like you to um, cancel these accounts. Yeah, you know, this is about as voluntarily, a voluntary as a person paying a shakedown uh, person from the mob after they watch this store next door get firebombed. Yeah, seriously. And, you know, Greenwald and others have written about this where it's when, I think Taibbi has covered this too, that it's when the Congress came to Silicon Valley and read these guys the riot act and said, look, fall in line or we're going to make you, and you know, it could be worse. So just do what we want. 
And then that was it. They started finding people guilty of being Russian bots or whatever was the order of the day. But I think the point being that they didn't want to get into this, right? Facebook and Twitter and whoever, they want to let people say whatever they want, you know, up to obviously the limit of threats and this and that. But in terms of, I don't know, I would, eh, I, I think that may have been fairly true of Twitter up to some point. Maybe 2015, 2000. I guess the idea was just yeah. to protect themselves, right? Yep. Like they didn't want to have to be required to put their thumb on the scale. They didn't want to set the precedent that they're here to put their thumb on the scale. I'm sure there it's must a, have been some of that. I don't mean to like apologize for them, but right, it's right. it's different. It's a whole new era when the government came and said, listen, everybody's a Russian. Everybody's trying to spread COVID and kill everybody. And everybody, yes, you're just saying their the quota, kill grandma. And then and turn everything into the emergency. And, you know, Caitlin Johnstone wrote about how, well, look, and then all of a sudden they just switch all the censorship to Ukraine. Now you're not allowed to be bad on Ukraine or they'll censor you for that. But what's the COVID emergency to life there? You know, like that's now we're just straight talking about we don't like your opinions and you're gone. They just the slippery slope straight to the bottom immediately censoring anti-war opinions, you know. Well, it's the government's been doing that for a damn long time. So sure. not overtly, mostly, but I mean, there's a lot of elbows and winks and nods and you meet, yeah. you see some of the people in Washington. Well, no, I'll just, I'll stop and be polite. Well, I'll tell you, I mean, it used to be that you Googled things and antiwar.com came up because we got a hundred million pages of really great journalism and writing and opinion pieces on all sure. these things going back for 25 years. And so our, you know, in the natural order of things, our SEO scores are killer, but they just downrank all this. You never just come across antiwar.com on the front page of Google results looking for this or that anymore, I don't think. Wow. It's a deliberate That's choice bad. that they made. And I hate to oh, give yeah. credit to them horrible uh, Trotskyites over at the World Socialist website, but I think they did the best journalism on this where they showed, you know, all their analytics about how all their referrals from Google just went all the way through the floor. And then they found that it was the same for antiwar.com but also for um, Truth Down and Truth Dig and a bunch of other kind of, well, you know, just one click left of the Democrats type sites. Both of those truth thingies there I just mentioned were not like radical communist anything. Not that those people should be censored either, um, but they were just, you know, good on wars. All you could say they're guilty of. And then I guess part of the story was they had censored so many right-wingers who were like pro-Trump people that they were trying to prove that they're fair. And so they had to persecute all these leftists too. Now they don't persecute a bunch of Democrats, right? They persecute people, yep. you know, to the left of the Democrats and then antiwar.com got thrown in with that, I think. Um, and which was goes to show that they don't know what they're doing. <laughs> right. Just right. Shocking. There. Shocking. Yep. Uh, and then, but there's no remedy for that. You know, and and you'd have to have Julian Assange out of the pen and and with a really, really, really secure website for somebody to ever prove that that's what happened was the government made them do that. But, you know, Taibbi is saying it's amazing. You read through this and you go, well, they're not building cases. They're not doing criminal work here at all. This is just the FBI being hall monitors and trolling on the web for things they don't like. What the hell is this? What does this have to do with their mandate? What law or even regulation says that they have the authority to do this at all? It's nuts. Now, this thing that you're listening to today, this GEC thing, I guess was created for that purpose. But the FBI itself camped out in San Francisco, emailing Twitter who to censor all day. There's no law that says they could do that. 
Who even made that up? This look, this is how the uh, the feds operate. So you know, I agree with you. It shouldn't be that way, but you know, um, you know, it's like the gambling at the casino in uh, Casablanca. So yeah. it happens. That's true. Well, they're the people who burn the branch of idiots. They do anything after that, before that, or after. Obviously, you know. Somebody got mad at me one time for uh, not mentioning the move bombing enough, but I guess that's because Waco mattered so much to me at the time, and I didn't know about the move bombing until later. But uh, that was the Philadelphia cops, but with a bomb that they got from the FBI that they dropped on those people. So that's, yep. you know, obviously another huge atrocity most people don't know about. But hell, just put move bombing into your Google Images results, everybody, if they'll show you. I mean, presumably, some search engine with with image results will show you what they did to those people there, man. That's another Waco. Um, and I'm sure there's more coming soon. We'll see. All right. Well, you got any more articles you wrote lately, Jim? Oh, uh, I'm on deadline right now. So I'm scrambling here to get something done by five. Oh, I see. That's all this body language about hurry up Horton and let me out of here. Well, that's fair. Uh, you should go uh, right uh, and, and educate them. New Yorkers. Well, I do what I can. All right. Well, thanks, Jim. Appreciate it. Hey, Scott. Thanks so much for having me in the program. Good luck with your book. I'm looking forward to see it. Oh, yeah. Thanks, Jim. All right, you guys. That's Jim Bovard. He's at jimbovard.com, and he's on Twitter at jimbovard as well. And uh, his latest book is Public Policy Hooligan. And again, he's our junior fellow, which uh, I don't think means that Lori is older than him. I think it just means that she was a fellow before he was. At the Libertarian Institute, libertarianinstitute.org, 30th anniversary of the FBI's biggest bomb. And at the New York Post, this one that I can't find anymore, about the first World Trade Center bombing. The Scott Horton Show, Anti-War Radio, can be heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in LA. APSradio.com, antiwar.com, scotthorton.org, and libertarianinstitute.org.